0: Are you a true motorsports enthusiast seeking premium safety equipment? Do you need expert advice to make the right choice? Look no further. Go to ogracing.com. Og, the ultimate destination for high-quality motorsports gear. OG stocks Dad, it's, og. it's not og. OG stocks products from the largest manufacturers including Sparco, OMP, Alpine Stars and much more. OG Racing is offering oh. it, It's OG is offering an exclusive 15% to our listeners. Use code SLIPANGLE15 at OGRacing.com during checkout. It's OG, Emma. You'll get free standard shipping on orders over $100. Don't miss out. Visit OGRacing.com and use SLIPANGLE15 at checkout. That's Um, OGRacing.com and SLIPANGLE15 at checkout.
1: This episode is brought to you by FireLapse and FireLaps.com. Too often, drivers fail to extract the full performance potential out of their vehicle at the track because analyzing motorsports data takes time and can be difficult to understand. FireLapse is a fresh and intuitive tool to simplify motorsports data review to allow you to focus on reducing your personal best lap time. This year, SlipAngle and FireLapse have partnered together to help our audience go faster. Annual subscription signups using promo code SLIPANGLE, or SLIPANGEL, We'll get 15 months for the price of 12 and a free SlipAngle or TrackTune t-shirt. Head over to FireLaps.com and start letting your data be your coach. For years, SlipAngle and Apex Pro have worked together to help make drivers faster. The all-new Apex Pro mobile app for iOS and Android is now available on the App Store and Google Play Store. Download the new app for free, create a user account to log as many laps as you'd like using your phone as the GPS source, Apex Pro is the app for timing your laps and logging your data at the track. With video recording and intuitive analysis features, plus the ability to easily share and compare data, Apex Pro is the best way to learn about your driving trackside. Apex Pro includes leaderboards so you can see where you stack up against other users, and Apex Pro lets you see other drivers on track in real time with the Crew View feature. Upload your data easily to FireLabs to compare with drivers using other data devices. Download for iOS and Android today by searching Apex Pro New. Hey, I'm... hey. Merry,
0: Merry post Christmas.
1: Post Christmas. Yeah, it's post Christmas. It's, it's a...
0: It's definitely not post-Christmas currently, but it will be when we talk uh, on the podcast. Here.
1: And uh, um, we've got a, an ultra special guest on the show today. But before we, we introduce them, I want to tell everyone that I got some sweet new 18-inch wheels for the Tesla. And I in the limited time that I've driven it already, I think 20-inch wheels on a road car is stupid. And I don't know why anyone wants them.
0: Yeah, more rubber is so much nicer when you're driving. It's it's, uh,
1: it's just so much better. And
0: those cars have like such a rubber band of a tire from the factory. Like it doesn't make sense to me. It's the, a big heavy wheel.
1: the The profile is thirty five. And if I had to guess, a twenty inch wheel plus the tire combination, I bet that that assembly is at least sixty pounds. It feels really heavy. I unloaded yeah. them from the car and. It was like I had to put a stack of them in my garage, and it was like, well, it was a decent amount of work to just make a pile.
0: Yeah, OEM wheels are heavy to begin with. I I tried putting my wife's 19-inch wheels up on my tire rack in the air in my garage, you know, Uh, when I put the snow tires on. I did it last year, and then I took them down, and I thought, I'm never putting these up here again, because each one is like 70 pounds, and I'm trying to put it eight feet in the air and we're just not going to do that anymore. So now they're on the ground. OEM stuff is, is heavy.
1: So, uh, the story yeah. behind these wheels is when I bought the car, it came with performance summers on and you, and you know, that, like pretty much any performance summer that comes factory equipped is not going to be a very good summer tire anyway. It's going to be a like compromised tire, but it essentially just means you have to buy a set of winter tires. And so yeah. when I got, Which is ca- silly. when I got the car, I placed an order with Jackie for a set of Titan Seven wheels, like right away. This was in June, and they were just like back ordered and back ordered. And then, okay, they finally shipped from the factory. They're on a boat. They're going to be here a while. And then Jackie texts me in November, and he's like, "They only sent three. And I was like, "Well, I need more than three. That's not going to work."
0: Good. It's a good thing you only got three wheels, you
1: know. Um, but the funny thing is, I I, I hate to like pull out the grid life card, I guess, but we went to PRI, uh, which is the kind of the largest racing trade show here in the United States. We went to PRI and I stopped at the Titan seven booth and I was like, Hey guys, you might have know me as a customer because I've been trying to buy this set of Tesla specific fitment wheels from Jackie and I just can't get them. And they were like, Oh yeah, we know you. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, I'm from grid life, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, well, we'll get you sorted out. And so that was on a saturday and the monday after jackie was like oh we found some some bronze in tesla fitment which is not even a like there's not a part number for that they don't make those he was like do (laughs) you want these and i I said yes and they were at my house a week later so
0: yeah they look they look good too you sent
1: sent some pictures um yeah 18 inch wheels are awesome
0: but uh you're you're riding nice you're getting better uh or miles per watt, or whatever you call it with a Tesla?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think it's probably like, I mean, I've only driven like 50 miles today, but I bet it's 10% better.
0: That seems nuts. I don't believe that, but I'll, you're a scientist. You'll figure it out.
1: Well, I want more <laughs> data, right? So I had 13,000 miles. I've driven the car 13,000 miles since June. And yeah. that's uh, way more
0: than I thought. Yeah, you do have a long commute.
1: Yeah, but I've driven to grid life and a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah. Bio um and like the the figure of merit for efficiency is watt hours per mile. I guess you could do the Lots. inverse as well. Um so basically in that car, it's a one kilowatt hour is about three ish miles thereabout. Um on average I'd been driving two hundred and seventy-three watt hours per mile over the course of that thirteen thousand miles. And mm-hmm. on today's drive it was about two fifty. So like yeah, it's about ten percent.
0: Yeah. Well, enough of the nerd talk. We have a, we have a new friend on the podcast.
1: Well, to me, he's an old <laughs> friend, but, uh,
0: yeah. so I, how, how do you, how do, how do you and Peter know each other?
1: Okay. So on the show is mm, engineering expert, uh, pro racer pro book writer, I guess is, is maybe a right way to introduce him. Um, that he, would be
0: called an author.
1: Oh yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, Maybe. Um, He is a person that I worked with uh, back when I was working at Dow Chemical. I worked on a Dow automotive project and he and I worked together. And it didn't take long for us to start talking about racing when we found out that each of us was into cars. And at that time, I think I was driving as a grid life competitor and was kind of transitioning into being more on the race official and administrative side and so um at that time i believe peter was leaving uh, dow automotive and i was leaving um my research department at dow chemical and so we we'd since kind of parted ways and didn't um work together but he wrote a book and he's on the show and i'm super super excited so peter welcome
2: thank you very much Abe. thank you adam nice to meet you as well yeah you too um, I've, I've greatly enjoyed the book on uh, most of the way
0: through, as we said before we started recording. Um, but, uh, yeah, why, uh, why did you write a book? Uh, and why did you write it about racing?
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, I guess if I was ever going to write a book, it would be about racing. Um, I probably don't know enough about anything else uh, to write a book or fill a book. Um, and I think th- the original intention uh, we're going back a long time now I've been racing 30 odd years or more um was to just make sure that I didn't forget all those fantastic experiences that I had and maybe some of the not so fantastic ones as well just to keep things in balance um so I didn't even think about publishing anything um and then I I spoke to a few guys in the in the in the sport and talked about some of those experiences and various uh you know beers were drunk and People convinced me that actually this story was too interesting to just keep as a private diary, but it should really be more useful uh, to, to other folk who are interested in the sport, whether they're you know aspiring drivers or, or whether they're spectators, enthusiasts. You know, there's a, there's a lot that I've learned, and I think if I had known what I know now um, before I started, I would have done things quite differently. Um, so the reason for the book was essentially to um, communicate that communicate those learnings to to folk who are interested, uh, to try to make sure that they didn't fall into the same traps that I fell into, or, or, you know, maybe give them a little uh, warning as to when things are going to go in a certain direction, they'll see it uh, before it happens. Um, And that applies not just to driving a car or, you know, how to drive a a certain track or whatever it is. It's also about the people you you encounter. Uh, Some of the things that happened to me, uh, you know, really quite unbelievable. I think if they happened in the real world, people would probably be in prison. Um, and then also something about the sport itself, that was the other motivation, which grew out of, again, some of those conversations where there's a growing dissatisfaction with certain categories in the sport. Um, you know, when I, when I hear people are falling asleep watching Formula One races, something's fundamentally wrong with the show. Uh, and it doesn't matter how many fireworks you let off or how many celebrities you have on the grid. Yeah. Um, I I could not agree more with that. Exactly. If the racing's crap, uh, you know, then you've got to do something about that. That's what should be at the heart of it. So, again, the book's motivation was to to talk a little bit about the the regulations, um, particularly at the top level, uh, which is supposed to be exemplary, supposed to be where the rest of the sport should follow, and also the tracks, because I think some of the track designs are also at fault for the boring races that we've witnessed. Um, and there's a lot in the book about what I've seen that makes good racing that I really wanted to share. So long answer to a short question, but um, I felt like it was the right time um, to do. I wouldn't want to do it when I'm retired and irrelevant. I'm still racing. So I feel like um, I wanted to to, to capture that, um, all those things I mentioned right now.
1: Well, that's, it's. I think, a really interesting point. And your background, which I'd love to touch on here in a minute, is... Um, kind of like the opposite of what Adam and I have uh, tried to build or in, in grid life, which is um, sprint races, right? So uh, a sprint race conventionally is very easy to understand. And in our case, it is especially easy because there's only one class of vehicle on track at a time. And uh, I admire endurance racing and I think it is fascinating, but it is very difficult to spectate. So you kind of touched on the show. And so, uh, Adam and I's involvement in grid life uh, has both the show in mind and the racing and the spectating and all of these, these elements on, um, endurance. Like how do you, how do you improve spectating on
2: endurance? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a choice um, that we all have. And, and may I say, I mean, I started out in sprint racing. I've had wonderful experiences with sprint racing. Um, you know, it, it's it's frenetic. Uh, there's no holding back. There's no pacing yourself. You've just got to go for it. And um, from that point of view, it's it's tremendously exciting. Um, the thing with endurance racing, though, that that I didn't get out of sprint racing was in sprint racing, you're in your car on your own and you're against everyone you're even against your teammates perhaps more so than anyone else and in endurance racing you get to share a car so selfishly um, I found a lot of enjoyment sharing with other drivers um, particularly if some of those other drivers may have been a little slower than than me I I found it very satisfying to work with them and bring them forward um, because obviously if you can make the slowest driver faster as a team, you'll be a lot more successful than if you just get a couple of tenths off your own lap time. So that that was a big draw um, <laughs> versus sprint racing. But in terms of spectators, which is really what your question's is about, um, I've spent a lot of time at the Nürburgring, the Green Hell. You know, again, the big inspiration for the book title. And um, you'll see more overtaking in one lap there than you'll see in a whole season of Formula One.
1: No doubt, when for I sure. Say
2: overtaking, when I say overtaking, I don't mean driving past someone on the straightaway. I mean overtaking, right, into the corner, on the brakes. And it's because there are so many cars in those endurance races, you know, 150 cars or more. Uh, it's because there are so many classes, um, so there's a big speed differential between them, um, that you'll see that excitement. So I think there are different ways of giving the spectators a, a wonderful show, um whether it 's the you know multiple sprint races in a day where you 've got the early and late laps all compressed up into a short race so that 's tremendously exciting that 's the route you're you're describing for g l t c um or endurance racing where it 's a whole experience over twenty four hours and and you may you know not only enjoy watching the racing um but you'll see a huge change of conditions over those 24 hours you'll be able to walk to different points in the track over those 24 hours because you've got time um you'll obviously have the night the day you know all those different things um play into the the spectacle so i think there are different ways of of entertaining folk but what i really don't like and i know i already made this comment um and i know you you voiced agreement is when the show gets in front of the racing because fundamentally people aren't stupid and they can see if something's been manipulated to the extent that it's no longer really a sport anymore and and it's no longer the case that the best drivers or, or the best teams are winning.
1: Sure. So uh, please don't consider me uh, a point of authority on anything. And so at this point, I'm just kind of spouting <laughs> my opinion. But um, it made like global news, that last rate race in Abu Dhabi a few years ago, where, uh, there was a yellow flag because of a crash and, uh, you know, Verstappen goes into the pits and changes tires and Hamilton doesn't. And there on the officiating side, there was a deviation. As my understanding, there was a deviation from racing protocol, um, That led to a competitive advantage that was counter to the way the race should have finished. But you could also tell that the race director who took a ton of flack um, that perhaps the race director was feeling pressure to finish the race under green. Um, And because of that, the outcome of the race was different than what it would have been had it just finished. Is that the kind of discussion that you're having?
2: Yeah, I mean it's one it's one element. You know, the interference of racing uh in the middle of a race that influences the outcome in a way that some folk would feel is unfair and manipulated is obviously unsavory for everyone. Um it's it's you know, if you take another sport, um, say tennis or, or something which is, you know, much more obvious what's going on, and suddenly right at the end of the uh of of the uh the tournament the two champions are slogging it out and suddenly they give one of them a smaller racket, right? It's, it's, it's not going to go down well with the crowd and nobody will understand why that should be. Now, what I would say though is that the championship wasn't won or lost in Abu Dhabi in 2021. The championship was won or lost over the whole season, but that race, the way that that was dealt with, um, was very obviously uh, a misjudgment. Um, you could always argue that things could have turned out differently for either team, depending on the strategy that they employed at that particular moment. Um, but their championships were won and lost earlier in the season as well, over over the whole year. I do think, though, that you know there, there's a, a a level of understanding which fans have, and there's a whole range of knowledge, of course, across the fans of, of motorsport. But there's a level of understanding. Uh, where there's an expectation of fairness, and that didn't appear fair, uh, and it didn't appear to be something that people could take seriously. I I must say at this point, I'm a Max Verstappen fan. I'm also a Lewis Hamilton fan. I'm a fan of any driver who puts it on the limit. I want to see drivers going beyond the capabilities of the machine they're driving. Um, It's a shame that the regulations don't necessarily allow that, Uh, in in certain categories but you know I I don't have any particular um, favorite between those two amazing drivers Um, but in that case um, their achievements were overshadowed by the misjudgment that you referred to and I think um, people saw through it and because they saw through that now they're looking now there's um, an immense you know through 2022 2023 there's an immense um, microscopic sort of attention to racing which was never there before because of that moment and people looking for you know oh that guy got a penalty the other guy didn't get a penalty but he did the same thing you know we've got all sorts of crazy in my opinion crazy track limits penalties going on which just ruin the racing or ruin the qualifying and confuse all the spectators (laughs) these, (laughs) these things are not you know they're not they're not really helpful to uh, to the sport going forward. Track limits are track such limits. a <laughs> funny discussion
1: because um in our series, maybe with the exception of going to Circuit of the Americas, which we do annually, enforcing a track limit is so unbelievably hard in a field of fifty five cars because there are potentially multiple spots along a track where a track limit violation could be a problem or be advantageous, right. and. Uh, in club racing, very few tracks have a camera and a person watching that camera for a thirty-minute race. Like it, yeah, it even is, with, it is even with a live
0: stream, yeah, it, you can't it, cover everything.
1: So all you can enforce is what you can see, and what you can see is maybe a fraction of what happens. So that's on the organizer side. That's a really, really hard thing to manage. Yeah. It
0: at Circuit of the Americas last year, I think we had 78 track limit violations in one race. And then we were like, you know what? I think this might be uh, a hard track for track limits.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, th- there's a couple of opinions I can share here. And and I, and I know there's a chapter on this in the book. Um, you know, I, I to a certain degree, I, I blame the tracks. Um, I mean, you just gave one example there of, of a track that's difficult to police. If that track was designed Differently, perhaps following some of the recommendations that I I give in in racing hell, um, you wouldn't have to police it. You know, if if you if you go over track limits at the Nürburgring, there's a wall there. (laughs) Yeah. You don't get back to the pits. Right. I mean, or if you do, you're going to need some heavy repairs. So it's it's a self-policing situation. Now, I accept that many races because they have many tracks because they have different categories of racing going on. They can't necessarily use the high curbs or the Armco that we have at the Nordschleife. You know, you have to think of motorcycle racing or other theories where, you know, th- there have to be uh, certain measures taken to ensure driver's safety. And that's absolutely right. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a smart race of, of human beings and we can come up with solutions. Uh, what's wrong with having curbs that are smart curbs? You can adjust them, right, um, depending on the category that's racing there. What's wrong with using Abrin to go back to uh, some of our Dow chemical history. What's wrong with using low friction services on the wrong side of the curb. Um, Sure. (laughs) You know, uh, what, what do we pray for when we're, when we're watching formula one, we pray for a wet race because it'll be exciting. Why is it exciting? It's because the grip levels are lower. So I'm blaming a lot of things here, which um, I touch upon, you know, just briefly today, but go into more detail uh, when I was writing. And I think, you've got to look at this whole bigger picture of why it's got to where it's got to. And it's got to where it's got to because there's this obsession with increasing speed all the time. Every year, lap records must be broken. And people have forgotten that it isn't about speed. It was in the early days of automotive, right? Everybody wanted to say they had the quickest car. But it's about the racing. It's about the quality of racing. And you don't need to go quicker to make the quality of racing better. What you need is a car that's increasingly difficult to drive on the limit that's going to sort out who the best drivers are and if track limits are an issue you can look at track design features as i mentioned but i think what's wrong with letting people go a little bit over track limits if that's the quickest way and as long as everybody's doing it i don't think there's really a problem well
1: i'm going to speak to to coda because it's the f1 track here in the states that uh I would say Adam and I know the best. Um but if if the intent of all of this runoff is to achieve uh a safer racing um and and potentially mitigate issues there is probably no worse corner that we host a race on than turn 1 at Coda which the track is fantastically wide at the start finish line and it pinches so unbelievably tight at the apex of turn one that you can't help but have contact with other vehicles and so like it feels intentional in its bad design and so having that runoff there is a consequence of like you could just make that corner better and then you would eliminate the need for a hundred feet of runoff
0: yeah it's a diabolical corner like you almost imagine Tilkey just like chuckling to himself thinking man we're gonna crash a lot of shit here (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. I I I can't speak for uh, his motivations, but you know I'm a huge fan of geography changes over a racetrack surface. I I really do uh, like compressions and crests and things that you know make make life a little difficult for the drivers. It sorts out the good from the bad or the good from the average. And I think what's interesting about Turn One at Cota, and I've I've raced there, I've, I've done a 24 hour there, and um, it's an appealing corner as you approach because if you do want to take a dive up the inside you're actually lengthening your braking distance by going diagonally up that hill into the apex um so you can take a nice late dive and the guy who's taken the traditional line you know straight up before turning in over the crown of the corner is is then you know finds you up the inside so there are some positives to that but i think the one at kota that used to um frustrate me in terms of track limits was the second but last corner that left-hander with the with the big runoff on the right, um, where it, it, even Formula One racing there, you know, would would really struggle to to stay on track. But I'm not talking about massive track limits abuse. I'm not talking about cars that go three or four car widths wide just to to you know make the corner quicker. I'm talking about this painful situation where you'll have the crowd cheering and everybody's you know super stoked by by qualifying session and then they find the guys on pole and they're all excited and then about an hour later they find out actually he's not because there were 40 track limits violations in that session and it all gets torn up and, and and a new grid is is formed that doesn't help the show at all and i think to do that when you've gone an inch or 2 inches over the line Is just crazy. There needs to be a better way where as you move further and further off the racing surface, there is less and less grip. However, that's done can be done with, as I said, you know, rough surfaces, low friction surfaces, even wet surfaces. That can all be done. Um, it's really not beyond the wit of man to sort that out. But to mess up people's show for a one or two-inch violation on a slow-motion camera for me, um, gets well away from what racing should be all about, for the spectator.
1: Agreed. Um, so you have, I I know that you touch on it in the book and I recommend that anyone listening to the show read this book because it's excellent. And if you are a fan of racing, you will enjoy it. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about your path? Because, um, the, the people that we are surrounded by in in our world of motorsports are all hobbyist racers. Um, very I don't think anyone does this with the intention to become a racing professional. Um, our club racing and our touring car racing tends to just be people who enjoy racing. And so um, even on like the the development ladder, how you become, a WEC driver for, you know, a a pro team is, is like a very strange thing to think about. I, I want to know how you went from club racing, which I completely understand what was the jump into a higher level or pro level motorsport? Because unless I completely misunderstood your um, life situation, I would not consider you a gentleman driver. So how did you find consistently? How did you find seats?
2: Uh, Okay, so uh, this is going to be a long answer. I hope that's okay. Um, So, yes, I started with club racing. Um, I didn't do any karting. I never actually really understood or imagined that I would ever have the chance to drive for other people. Um, So club racing was something that I did. Um, It was a a very nice way to spend a lot of time with my dad, who used to race a little bit in the 50s, um, club racing. And um, we were Alfa Romeo fans and we had an Alfa Sud uh, that was essentially an old road car that we built into a racer. And it really wasn't heavily modified at all. And it was a very cheap way to go racing. Um, and he um, he and I both have the same competitive spirit. And, and that led us to get into modified cars, modified uh, Alfa Suds, but still club racing very much on the low end of the budget. And I would say I had the most fun racing those cars. Um you know, the 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 camaraderie of the paddock, um, you know, the the kind of racing, um, the fact that our car would be strong in some places and weak in others, um, you know, really made for an exciting time and, and it was a, a lot of fun. Now, why did I depart from that? Um it was really a question of how far can I go? It was a curiosity question. You know, I I, I was doing well or we were doing well in that car. Um, And I gave a phone call to um, the the, the ProDrive team in the UK who were running the Alphas in British Touring Car at the time. And um, I said, look, you know, winning races with this Alpha, what gives? You know, what what can we do? How how can I progress? And they gave me some good advice. And it was essentially to get into one-make racing to prove that it was me um, rather than the car that was winning, um and as we all know even in one make racing it's still down largely to how well the car's prepared and there's a lot in that uh in the book as well sure yeah but that that was my path at the beginning a- away from club racing and and the sad the sad part about this is that in hindsight it was probably the least enjoyable period of my racing career from doing fiestas you know i was going from a, a car in the alpha the last alpha i raced 180 horsepower weighed about 700 kilos and was just a absolute uh gem to drive to a 90 horsepower ford fiesta um which was let's say not so much fun to drive and if you made any kind of mistake you you were you know going to lose the slipstream you'd be well off the back of the field so you know saw success there managed to progress to vectras Vauxhall vectras which was like a junior touring car category more power more speed more cost um, but I had sponsorship at that point because I, you know, won a, a, a you know a few in in fiestas and I was able to generate some interest. Um, and with that, I was able to uh, progress forwards. But you know, there was were some hiccups along the way because the uh, you know championships that I was entering were stopped early, or, or uh, you know, uh, had to kind of take a circuitous route. But what I was really trying to get to was touring car because in those days the super tourers were just such a phenomenal series to watch very exciting even just one of them going round was exciting enough never mind all of them and i wanted to get there and um i did and like i said it was kind of a culmination of of the, the most um frustrating part of my my racing career um for so many reasons and the book goes into this in really far more detail than i i was expecting but i figured if i'm going to share why it was frustrating and why you know, it would have been perhaps a lot more fun to have stayed in club racing, I had to get into that detail. Um, and the detail is about the people and the things that happened and the things that got in the way of success that really shouldn't have. Um, and there was a point at the end of that phase of my my driving career where I was absolutely ready to give it up, um, absolutely. And then a friend of mine got in touch and we did a small club race together um, funnily enough, in the most unlikely car, it was a, a two CV Citroën, um, <laughs> probably the, probably the most fun you can have at the slowest speed. And, um,
1: in our series, I, uh, we do time trials with, uh, Honda fits and oh, yeah. it's probably not too dissimilar. Honda fits are very slow, but when they're driven hard, they're super fun.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't understand the handling of the two CV. I can tell you, I mean, it, it, it it didn't seem to do what it was supposed to do but somehow it got around the corners and there was a lot of body lean and you know you we were using every single one of those very little number of horsepower but uh in the end it just reignited my interest um and few conversations here and there and I realized the reason I had enjoyed it so much is because I was sharing the car with the, with the owner a guy called Paul so you know unwittingly he'd sort of opened up a corridor of enjoyment that i haven't understood and that was endurance racing it wasn't particularly a long race by the way but it was it was the fact that it was shared and that's led me to the last 20 odd years of my my driving and and by driving a car with someone else it takes out of the equation whether it's the car that's winning or whether it's the driver because you're able to compare yourself to the two three you know other drivers that are sharing the car with you um on a particular track and and to answer your one of your questions in there, you know, how, how did I manage to 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 get to the point where, you know, folks were bringing uh, opportunities to me? Um, and it was really the fact that I could show that in the same car I could be very competitive um, and also to work with the team in a way that allowed the whole team to become more competitive. I mean it's no good being the quickest guy if your car's still not winning. Well no, so it's that combination.
1: Well, I'd like to to interject with maybe a follow-up question then. I don't expect that the the economics or race of racing are very different in the United States versus in the UK. Um what what I see, and probably Adam would agree, being fast today is not sufficient to sustain a racing career because there are many people who are fast. And so uh, when you, you made a point, which was interesting, which was talking about the other stuff that you can bring to the series that maybe isn't just dollars, because of course, if you can buy a seat, you'll get a seat. But uh, in your case, if you're not directly paying for those opportunities, how would you describe the things that you bring to the team that Make the team want you to be part.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to answer that first by by saying, and you know, there's no point in in pretending otherwise. That one of the most important things is to be able to attract sponsors to the team, whether they're personal sponsors or whether they're team sponsors. That you, as a driver, being a part of that team, a very important part of that team, can um, you know can not only um, maintain that relationship but actually build it and and Bring things um that maybe those sponsors weren't expecting so you know Abe, you mentioned you and i have worked in the corporate world together um there's actually a, a, a very important realization at some point i had um is that instead of trying to go out and, and and court sponsors that maybe you think would be interested in racing just look at the companies you already know look at the contacts that you already know and try and work out whether they could benefit from involvement, because that's you know a large to a large degree what I was able to do. I was able to look at the network of customers, for example, that we had, and there were guys in there being you know in the automotive world who are you know big big enthusiasts of motor racing. And when they find out that you race, it was a relatively small step to bring them and get them involved and and, and look at relationships that could be could be um, established like that. So you know I'm not going to pretend that it was some other magic that the first and foremost was racing teams are businesses and they run on money and there's a chapter funnily enough called show me the money in the book um which explains a lot about how how to how to make sure that the relationships you build with sponsors are meaningful what kind of things you can do to go well beyond the the sort of traditional hey can i put a sticker on my car look we've got tv coverage you know that that's that's just the very very start. There's so much more to the relationship, um, and how you can help them off track as well. So that's that's important. But in terms of the team wanting you there, I mean, success goes without saying. You know, you should be able to win if the car's competitive or do very well. Um, you shouldn't be crashing the car, of course. Uh, and if you do, and it's your fault, you need to be honest and own up to it, and not try and blame someone else or or, or try and claim uh, innocence. So it's about trust. Um, It's about being able to work together. Um, Actually, funnily enough, there are a lot of parallels with business here. Um, The business world needs teamwork. It needs proper delegation of of responsibilities, you know, but it needs, in some certain circumstances, additional effort, crazy effort sometimes, you know, where you pull an all-nighter to get something done Um, as a driver it helps a lot if you stick around if you help if you know you may not know how to uh, fix the particular technical issue that uh, the guys are working on but you know you're there with them late at night and trying to work on the problem whether it's a data related issue whether it's a mechanical repair issue whatever you you try to be willing and not act like one of those guys who um, you know just turns up for the race and then disappears again so I think yeah. there's there's a lot to the relationship, and there's there's something about that in the book uh, around what I call people power. You know, if the if the folks aren't behind you in the team for whatever reason, um, you're just making it even harder for yourself to be successful, and you're most likely not going to have the opportunities that you uh, you, you may feel you deserve.
1: It's really interesting, Adam. What do you yeah. think?
2: Being, I
0: think, being a people person uh, can definitely help with with sponsorship, but, uh, it does seem like, you know, having the most well-rounded background, uh, and also, you know, coming from the professional side as well, like, uh, like both of you actually do. Um, I, it, it, uh, it can definitely make you look at partnership and sponsorship in a different way. And that's sort of some of the struggles that we have with the actual business of grid life. I mean, we, we could, if, if all the stands were packed at, 14 rounds we could probably be a business off of spectators but uh but it's the same thing building relationships with companies like valvoline and falcon tire and things like that that have really kept the business afloat so you gotta yeah. you gotta you gotta learn a lot of new skills if uh, if you're gonna try to make a living in racing
2: <laughs> you have you have and it's the skill of um be, being almost all things to all people um you know whether it's internal in the team Um, You know, loyalty plays a big factor. I mean, I I was extremely fortunate to race for Aston Martin for 10 years and those 10 years um, were repaid with some fabulous experiences and results. But, you know, I was I was prepared to sign up to whatever they said I needed to do and whatever car they decided to build that year and race that year. But um sometimes I, I was thinking, you know, actually, I'd quite like to go up a level here with your car. But if you decide to race a GT4 this year, you know, I'm, I'm good with that. I didn't I didn't fight that at all. So I was absolutely part of the team and part of the direction that Aston was going. And because of that, I was I was there a long time. Um, so I, I do think it's it's about not being selfish. I mean, I'm because of my background, maybe um, I'm grateful to drive anything honestly. Um, and if the car isn't competitive, I see it not as a frustration, but as a challenge. And, and right. I try to, uh, to see what, you know, what we can do with that. But to your point about, um, grid life and, and, you know, making it something that's special for spectators and sponsors and, and so on. I can tell you that one of the best things we ever did was find ways to put the sponsors in the car. And I don't just mean oh, sitting yeah. in the pit garage. Yeah. I mean, out there on the track. um, and one of the best things that I ever experienced was um, the VLN series at the Nürburgring Nordschleife. On a Friday afternoon, there's a two-hour session where you could take the actual race car that you're going to be racing the next day and you can fit a passenger seat and you can take sponsors around for two hours at near-on racing speeds. And I Absolutely. can tell you that that's something that they will never forget. It's not nothing that you can buy. It's nothing that you can pay for it's just it's such a life experience and okay it's not for everyone um some folks don't enjoy that experience i'm not sure i'd enjoy being driven by me around there um <laughs> it's but
1: it's funny you say that uh and I'm, i guess i'll just speak to to my experience i know that in this case i'm not a sponsor but we recently i guess in october hosted an event at laguna seca it was a, a big music festival and racing event there. It was our first time there. It is a spectacular place. And the uh, amazing thing to me is that when people think of Laguna Seca, they, of course, think about the corkscrew. That's that's all yeah. anyone can remember is the corkscrew. Um, I'm very fortunate. One of my friends has a 700-horsepower LS7-powered Uh, drift car it's wonderful Um, this was
0: the first time that anybody had ever drifted laguna seca full course as well so wow. uh, i don't I still don't know how we got them to allow us on brand new pavement to put pro drift cars around the whole thing. It was a lot of work to, <laughs> the, to convince the track
1: <laughs> so people were were enthusiastic and enthralled with the idea of drifting the corkscrew and how crazy it was going to be. Um, having spent a lot of time in both grip cars and drift cars, it was my experience that the corkscrew is at least in a drift car a non event because the car is going slowly as it goes down. Um, and right. like maneuvers that, that section of corners, but the immediately following corner, which I believe is turn nine, um, uh, rainy,
0: I think, it's in, uh, the, yeah.
1: yeah, rainy, I think is fascinating because in a drift car, the passenger, which in this case is me is basically the leading edge of the vehicle. And the uh-huh. car accelerates from, I don't know, 40 or 50 miles an hour to 120 miles an hour. And my eyeballs are staring at concrete because the car is sideways, but my body is going downhill at 120 miles an hour. Um, yeah. That's a visceral experience that if you put a, you know, a, a partner like Valvoline or Advance or whatever, um, like they couldn't possibly forget that the rest of their life.
0: No, and we did. and And... And that ride-along thing, like you like you, like you, you brought up with, uh, I mean, a two-hour chunk of an event where you can put partners or friends, family, crew in the passenger seat. Uh, we've, just in the past couple of years, we've been playing with taxi sessions, we call them, uh, during our festivals, just so you can put people on the racetrack, you know, people that are just there spectating, uh, if they can get, you know, if they can get in line and uh, be a lucky one almost, it's, Absolutely. they can they can get around the racetrack and see it for the first time and that's created such a huge like it's created such a huge demand for it that we didn't we didn't think there was that much demand for it um and we're trying to figure out how someone could reserve a spot in the future to do that but it's also you're putting so many people uh, you're bringing context to what they're seeing and i can imagine for a sponsor that would be like well, yes. uh, now, now they're now they're in your corner. You're not bugging them. They're bugging, you know, the penny pincher to to make sure they can get that money next year so they can maybe do yeah. it again. <laughs>
2: so. They're getting value. They're getting value that they can't get anywhere else, right? Yeah. And they become an advocate. Yep. It's incre- yep. getting increasingly difficult in the corporate world to uh provide um, you know, gifts and so on to to customers. There are various rules and things, but experiences are something different, you know. And maybe the way forward, um, when you mentioned there about your, your spectator crowd, you know, maybe when they buy their entry ticket for an extra five bucks, they, they buy a, a, an entry into a draw to get a lap, you know, and right. then it's a random draw, those kind of things. I remember going to Spa uh, in Belgium, um, raced the 25 hours there in what was used to be called the Fun Cup Series. I think it's still called that. Um, and it was a big. Was such a cool series. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, talk about value for money. My God, if you if you measure value in seat time, that is an amazing series. Uh, Again, you're sharing a car, but you're getting to drive, you know, lots and lots of hours in in, in a weekend on amazing tracks uh, against 180 other cars from all different countries. But the really weird thing was, and I don't think they did this uh, more than one one year they actually had um cars in the pits that were more or less identical to the race cars but with two seats in because those cars they had a central driving position so it was a you know they shoehorned another seat in there and they'd take people around in the middle of the race it wasn't even what? like a, a session before or after you know it was during and it was a real problem because these cars were tuned up a little bit I, i'm i'm pretty sure because they were they seemed to be very quick down the straights but because they had an extra, you know, person in, in the car, the, the extra mass, they'd be braking a little earlier. Uh, right. The tires are often cold because they just come out of the pits, and it would play mayhem with us who were actually in the race because they're <laughs> be right in the way, you know. So it, it was it was an unusual one, but it just shows that you know people are prepared to try these things, and, and yeah. once people have understood that those kind of experiences exist, it, it changes the game. And as you said, it gives a an entirely different perspective of racing
1: when you're actually on the other side of the armco. Yep. So, um, Adam and I talked a little bit about what we would discuss on this show before we started recording and both he and I were fascinated with a chapter that you talked about. Mm, I don't know. Premonition is maybe the right word. I am. Intuition, yeah. I'm, I'm not a religious person. I, I tend to not believe in anything supernatural, But as I was reading this chapter, I thought about a very specific experience that I had in my own life, where I felt like you and I were talking about the same feeling. So when I lived in Chicago, I rode my motorcycle a lot. And uh, I tended to ride late into the fall, almost winter, when things got cold. And I tended to start riding while things would still be frozen in the morning, in the spring. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had a very, very vivid dream. I remember it today and I can tell you exactly where I was in the city of Chicago that I had in this dream, a substantial motorcycle accident. And I can tell you exactly what the conditions were and I can tell you what preceded it. And I woke up from that dream and I said, I'm done. And uh, I sold my motorcycle basically immediately following that. And it was because I had this sort of weird moment that maybe it was, maybe it was a risk that I was just taking and, and perhaps not thinking deeply about. Um, but in your book, you talk about this, this weird sixth sense. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more?
2: Certainly. And in fact, um, I'm very glad that you shared that, Abe, just now, because um, you would not believe... The number of people who, since this book came out, have contacted me and talked about their own, let's call it supernatural um, experiences, and I think you know we'd be pretty stupid and ignorant uh, to think that we fully understand everything that's going on in the world. I'm sure every generation has has thought that they understand most of what's going on, but then they're proved wrong, right? As as later generations discover what's really happening, and I'm not smart enough to explain why you had that dream or whether, you know, your your dream was based on on, on a reality that could have happened had you not elected to change that reality. Um, but I can tell you that in my own case, um, I had, which is again detailed, uh, as you've seen in, in the book, I had um, a crash um, in a car due to a brake failure on a sunny day at a particular race circuit, Mallory Park uh, in the UK. And um, as soon as I went on the brake pedal and it went to the floor, I knew exactly, it was exactly what I had dreamt about five days prior. And at that point, I just thought, you know, you must be imagining it because we're conditioned to not accept things that we can't explain. That's a, just a feature of the human race, right? So we, we immediately start talking about crazy and, uh, you know, it's a conspiracy theory or whatever until until we have evidence. Well, fortunately... I had told my housemate the previous Friday at breakfast that I'd just had that dream. And I was able to drive home after the actual crash, which was the following Tuesday. And before I said anything uh, else, I said to Nick, my housemate, you remember that dream I told you about last week? And he said, you mean the one where you crashed the Alpha? It was like, yep, it happened. And I did tell you, and there's no disputing the fact that not only did I see everything from the driver's perspective, but the uh, the detail is extraordinary. For example, as I hit the brake, I'm approaching a hairpin. There's no runoff. There's no, no track limit issue there. Um, and um, as I hit the brake and it went to the floor, I, I looked down to find a handbrake to try and yank it and turn the car and I don't think I'd have had the presence of mind to do that and in the dream I broke the handbrake because I pulled it so hard and in reality I broke the handbrake I pulled it so hard. <laughs> but the uh the thing that's really weird is I, I could see the floor of the car the car was red and I could see the sunlight shining on the floor of the car and that's exactly what I saw in reality so I even knew what the weather was going to be like
1: <laughs> you it's... could
2: argue I, it, it's quite unusual to have sunshine in the UK so that's even more extraordinary but You know, those things all happened. Um, Is it because we don't understand time? Is it because we think that time follows one second after the other because that's what happens on a watch, you know, and that's the way we can make sense of the world? Maybe it all happens all at once. I have no clue, but I put it in the book because I was fascinated by it. I couldn't explain it. Um, And I'd love for more folks to come forward and talk about their own experiences because I think by, by sharing them, um, we, we stand a chance of trying to uh, explain them.
1: Well, so the the curious thing about this incident and perhaps uh, likening it to my own experience was, um, was it, if you weren't into racing cars, it would be very odd to have a dream about racing cars and having a brake failure, right? Like if you, if you hadn't raced a car in your life, this dream wouldn't make any sense. But sure. you have to wonder, is, you know, is your brain just uh, kind of compiling an assessment of risk or something based on a likely scenario? So it's the way the, the failure you described was never outside of the realm of normal possibility in the same way that in, in my case, the reason I had a motorcycle crash was because I was turning sharply on a road that was covered with wet leaves, which of course is quite slippery. And, Mm Uh, so, was the dream really just a uh, a second guess of the the thing that I was doing that was maybe larger risk than I was uh, giving it credit, or right. you know, is is it something well beyond that? Adam, I think you have your own story here.
0: Yeah, I uh, we both brought this up when we were like, "What do you want to talk about?" And I think Abe brought it up like the the premonition, or I forget exactly how you talked about it in the in the book. And I think you also had a you had an anecdote about. Uh, not driving, you know, 10 tenths uh, on tracks that might be mixed conditions, and how some people did that. And you finished a race because, you know, you were, you know, cautious in a certain area. But I had almost an identical, like, situation to yours uh, with uh, at Mallory Park, where mm. I, this is like 10 or 15 years ago. We were just doing lapping days at the time, and I had a very fast car in a straight line. Uh, it was like a, you know, I don't know if you're into drag racing, at all, but it was about a high 10 second car in a straight line. But it also Ooh, turned wow. pretty well. So it was fast. And I was I was instructing uh, at just a, at, at a lapping day. And I had had several dreams where I came over the crest and dropped into this one spot at Gingerman Raceway. Kind of turn turn five, six combo. We call it the toilet bowl. There's a bunch of different uh, it's kind of, you know, it's it's a little bit of blind going into six. And I had, I had multiple dreams where I drove into the back of somebody because I wasn't looking far enough ahead and I was going way faster than them. They were in a cool non-lap in the middle of the track and I drove into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember crest in turn four and I'm like, I, I grabbed fourth gear or fifth gear. I forgot. i real fast and I need to break way earlier. And I remember cr- rounding turn four, dropping into turn five and it popped into my head, uh, that dream and so I broke about 200 feet early and slowed way down, uh, and I, I was probably only six, seven years into driving, and this was like you know I would drive four or five times a year, and then five or six times a year, and uh, so not the most experienced, but I was probably one of the more experienced people at the event. But I broke way earlier, and this and the situation that I had dreamt about happened, except for I didn't crash. Um, yeah. It was it was the situation. It was the same yellow Integra that had been in my dreams. And I thought I have to be losing my mind, but I've always kind of picked up on, on like the deja vu thing. Like I have that a lot, especially, um, I, I work two full-time jobs. One of them is construction one of them is grid life. So it's about, a lot of them can meld, you know, and then we also do the podcast. We've done this for eight, nine years, but I'll, I'll be on conference calls while I'm on ladders often. Hmm. And, and I trust my, I trust my gut so much more now, like making a move on a ladder because I have all these like almost deja, like vivid deja vu. Like I'll spin around just just in a certain way, 15 feet in the air on a ladder and I'll have a deja vu. And then you take a step uh, or a, a moment, a beat. And the thing that your body says don't do If you did do that, you'd fall off a ladder. I don't have a great, you know, I don't know. It's, it's. I don't have a great example of it, but it happens a lot. And I like weekly, it happens 50, 80 times a year. And I do think that there is some kind of weird connection with our subconscious and maybe, you know, the maybe time's not linear. Like you said, I don't know. I don't have any like, I don't have any theories, but there is something there with people. And I thought it was fascinating that you brought it up.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, okay. uh, Some people might, be be sort of laughing behind their hands because you know people get uncomfortable with this stuff right um i mean it's not the only uncomfortable thing i talk about in the book i can assure you from my perspective it, it was a pretty much bearing my soul in many cases but i think the point is that if we are creatures of evolution um we are the survivors right and the the ones who who made it so far and it doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination to think that there are Features in our makeup that allowed us to survive where others maybe didn't and maybe some of those premonitions or uh, deja vu, sixth sense, whatever you want to call it, maybe those are a lot more advanced and capable than we would understand or recognize and I think it's sometimes a question of just accepting that can actually make them perhaps even more effective if you fight them if you say ah it's nonsense you know it's 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 embarrassing to talk about or people would think i'm a weirdo if i do bring it up you know you're probably blocking any any chance of that stuff happening i will say this though i've crashed a lot of cars in my time and i didn't have a dream before every crash so it doesn't work as a radar (laughs) <laughs> um it, it, you know it, it worked it worked that time i did have one other premonition that had nothing to do with racing that that also uh i mentioned in the book um and other people have spoken to me about theirs but it, it's more of a i feel like it's like a radio that needs to be tuned to the right frequency um and if it is then maybe you can pick up on some of these future signals but um you know at all other times um whether it's conscious or unconscious you know you 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 probably or we probably miss a lot Uh, but it's fascinating I'm I'm very happy that I put it in because like I said you guys have brought some stuff up today other people have spoken to me and I think it's just a question of getting past the taboo of not talking about it Um, stand a chance of actually understanding how frequent it is and maybe even you know somebody much smarter than me can uh, can explain how it works
0: yeah, I don't think it's coincidence that so many of us have these similar stories. Sure,
2: um, absolutely. Just, just uh, wish I could predict the lottery numbers with it, you know. But it doesn't. I, I so it doesn't seem You'd, to know.
0: You wish you could uh, instantly have the right setup on the, the car alignment specs. You wish, you, you wish that all these premonitions came in more convenient ways. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, Peter, you um, you have a ton of accolades, and your racing res- resume is pretty lengthy. Um, just for the audience, uh, this might even be in the bio of, of the, the, like front cover of the book. Um, you have, is it, is it right that you have more 24 hour at Nürburgring race, Ring racing starts than anyone or, or something to the, to that effect?
2: Actually, uh, to, to be completely accurate. Um, I'm the British driver with the most starts. There are seven Germans ahead of me, um, and some of those are still racing today. But my goal is to uh, continue until I'm not competitive anymore. Um, and I've done, this will be my 22nd Nürburgring 24-hour start this year. That's um, so crazy. It's, I didn't, didn't intend to do this, but honestly, it's an addiction. I, I have to be straight about that. And it fulfills my racing needs um, in a way that nothing else could. Yes I've done some other racing al- along the way in the meantime but my priority is the Nürburgring and um it's it's a racetrack that is is endlessly fascinating um every single lap around that track is 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 different even within one stint uh, every year it changes um, not just because of the work they do on the track but you know just the fact that it's built in the way it is um you know bumps that were of a certain severity before the winter change after the winter sometimes, you know? Well, so, you, right.
1: it, you, you talk, there's a chapter in the book where you talk about mm, people's fascination with quote, the limit and, mm-hmm. uh, maybe summarizing part of what you discussed, but I, I would say also my feeling on the subject is, this this whole idea of driving at the limit, especially at a place like the the Nurburgring, is is almost completely nonsense, right? I I can't imagine there is a driver that would do a lap at the Nurburgring and get out and say, no, that lap was perfect. That that couldn't have been faster. Like it's yeah. it's too long. You just can't. There's going to be a mistake somewhere.
2: Yeah. Oh, it's,
0: conversely, I did just we did just do a show. I did it at PRI with Ross Bentley, who I I don't know if you're familiar with, but he's a He's kind of like the the super coach in the U.S. He's all over the world, and he did talk about how he was at he was leading a tour group at the Nurburgring, and somebody wanted him to set some data laps in, I forget what a re, Renault Ma, Magan or yeah I, I Magan forget. yeah yeah uh, and or Renault if you're in the USA. <laughs> um, and, and he, he did two laps and he thought those are pretty good laps. I think I got most of it out of it. I think they were within four tenths of each other, uh, in a slow car like that. Uh, so maybe people can creep up pretty close, but yeah, I don't think there is, there's, I don't think there's too many perfect laps, but, uh, they definitely probably exist once in a while.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think if you give a driver endless time in the car, at whatever track, not just the Nürburgring, they'll always find ways to go quicker um but it's also the case that um your your setup may have been perfect at the start of that lap bearing in mind fuel load bearing in mind tyre wear bearing in mind you know all those other factors that influence the speed of a car by the time you get to the end of the lap tires a little bit more worn fuel loads a little lighter you know the setup is not going to be absolutely ideal so we're now talking down to a thousandth of a second but if the limit is a defined maximum speed or minimum time for that lap Nobody will ever, this is my, account, my my position anyway, nobody will ever be able to claim that they drove at the limit because it will always be possible to go faster, always. And, you know, the Nürburgring is a, an extreme case because the lap is so long. But what we tend to focus on there is stint time, you know, the time over eight or 10 laps, not the time over one lap, because you have obviously a race to win and it, it's what your overall stint time is that really matters Um, some folks I've driven with have set up cars to be super quick over one lap and it's bitten them in the race because after three or four laps they can't keep the back end in line anymore you know because they've got just way too much tire wear at one end or the other so I think the concept of the limit is one of those things that people like to imagine you know drivers who are protective of their careers like to say yeah I drove at the limit," or I was uh, you know absolutely um, on the limit there Maybe true on a corner or two, and I've you know had the luxury of driving alongside and sharing cars with with pro drivers who are absolutely world class and and they'll say you know when they're setting a car up they'll go well beyond the limit because they're confident they can bring it back, and that's the only way they can really find the limit sure, but in the race in the race, are they driving on that limit absolutely not it's well I, I
1: think you maybe you say this in the book, but we you talk about um the leader's responsibility to Basically, control the pace. They're obligated to go as fast as they need to to win the race. But if there's not someone from the back pushing them to go faster, there is no obligation to go faster. And so uh, I think this is especially apparent in F1 when you look at qualifying pace and you compare it to race pace. Now, I know Mm. that the environments are different, but in some cases, the cars might be four to six seconds slower during the race than they are at qualifying pace. So discussion about the limit feels a little bit like disingenuous.
2: Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. And it's one of the, again, I have to say in my opinion, but it's one of the uh, the things that I think are, are, are damaging the sport. Um, you know, people who rock up at a racetrack to watch cars being raced want to see that those cars are being driven on the limit at all points, at all times. And the idea that a car would be driving off the limit to save fuel, off the limit to save tyres, off the limit to harvest electricity, um, just, I think, is 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 an insult, actually, to people who have um, even a rudimentary understanding about what car racing should be. You know, th- the limit is something that is real. People don't drive on the limit all the time, as we've just said, but what you do want to see is people going over the limit in order to overtake, in order to really squeeze the maximum out. And and you want the guy to come in at the end of the race, you know, his eyes on stalks or her eyes on stalks, um, you know, and and really have got the most out of themselves that they could have done. And that's going to involve maybe some corners being over the limit, some corners being under the limit, but beating the other guys. That's the point. And I think it was... You know, the famous Juan Manuel Fangio, who who said, you know, you don't need to win by a, a mile. You just need to win by enough. I'm misquoting him. But the the concept is it's a race. And if you do have the luxury of being in the lead, sure, you know, you may be able to slow down a little bit. But the guys behind you ought to be uh, falling over themselves, trying to keep control as they try and catch you. And that's what people want to see. Well, yeah, to, to, the shakes, the to shakes are what we, we've called it. <laughs> you want You want to end with the shakes.
1: To your point, Peter, um, I, you probably, maybe you watch NASCAR, but perhaps not. Mm, um, certainly
2: I've, I've, have witnessed the NASCAR race live and it was an awesome, awesome spectacle.
1: So, uh, just this year, NASCAR hosted a street race in Chicago and I generally don't spectate NASCAR, but because of its ties to Chicago and a few people from grid life were tangentially involved in, in the event, um, I found myself watching this street race, and if we were talking about limit and visualizing cars being driven at the limit, watching 3,400-pound NASCARs attempt to navigate a touring car circuit on a street course, um, the camera work for that race made it look like the drivers were driving hard. Like yes. the the challenge of trying to get those cars to do those things was picked up very well in the race coverage, and that made it fun to watch.
2: Absolutely, much. if you watch um, Australian supercars, same thing, right? Those cars are hurled around over curbs, and you know they're 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 just absolutely on the limit or beyond the limit of adhesion, and and, and to make a pass in a in a series like that requires you know a great deal of skill and risk taking and and you know obviously safety notwithstanding that's what people want to see i think the reason that i've gravitated towards gt racing is because the cars are compromises you know you start with a base vehicle that's obviously designed for the road it has its own aerodynamic and and uh, its own mechanical uh sort of tendencies um and and you have to get the most out of That car, you have to minimise the weaknesses where you can with setup and driving style, uh, and and exploit its strengths. And and that's what makes that kind of racing so much fun. Is that you're not in a a car that has such a high level of grip or downforce that that you know really nobody can see from the track side whether or not you're close to the limits. These things are just going around like a scale electric, you know. And what you really want is is more of the visual indicators that you were speaking of that, that the car is you know almost out of control maybe even out of control at certain points that's that's where you know the excitement builds well and i think what I... um Go
1: ahead, I'm sorry. The, one of the one of the biggest challenges that i see for spectating endurance racing is there is an immense amount of strategy that goes into winning races and you have dozens of people that are working in a spreadsheet and talking over different paths and deciding when to do what. And all of those things are uh, integral to a positive outcome in a race. But as a spectator, especially if you're in person, um, there's, there's no way to get that sufficient amount of context to know are these teams pushing or are they saving or are they conserving? Are they, are they trying to, to keep fuel? Like it's really, really difficult to get all that information. And because of that, the race, like you end up watching the race at face value instead of appreci- uh, appreciating the actual race, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. no, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the spectator experience of an endurance race is an entirely different one than a sprint race. And I, I think the purity of sprint racing um, and the the short race format you've spoken of, and and the equalisation of the cars to ensure that everybody has a you know a, a, an equal or as close to equal chance as possible of winning, is is a phenomenal uh, approach. Um, and from a spectator's standpoint, it's very clear that um, there should be excitement then um, every time the the you know the green lights uh, come on. Um, I think from endurance racing standpoint the the spectacle is different not necessarily less entertaining but it's a different kind of entertainment we do try to involve folks as, as much as possible to to ensure they can see what's going on so you know for example if there are different classes of car it's very clearly indicated so they understand um if the car's being lapped versus honestly overtaken um and and there are you know so many uh um opportunities to move around and see different uh, spots of the track within 24 hours or 12 hour race there's lots of time um to, to pick your spot so you, you can find different places to watch and and get a different perspective like that there's time to visit the pit lane during the race and see you know the pit stops and all of those things so that there are different opportunities yeah. in that format of racing to provide entertainment but it's just not I, you, you look at the like the, the,
0: the rolex 24 and Le Mans and uh I hear the VLN 24 has got a big spectator crowd at the, at the ring, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Just, just, just a different,
0: it's a different way to watch racing. I think it's super cool.
2: It is. It is just so we don't get into trouble or I don't get in trouble. So VLN is the series that typically has four or six or 12 hour race. And then the 24 is actually run by a different organization, but it's all on the same track. Absolutely. Or more or less, there's a slight difference. And um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, you know, 300,000 people, camped around they start to rock up about 10 days uh before that's sort of so of wild crazy so cool. structures yeah. you know with a sofa on top and um i i've occasionally i've i've you know had a breakdown or whatever and had to uh to, uh, walk, walk back or, or wait by the trackside, And the people are fantastic. I mean, they're just, they once they realize you're anything to do with the team, I mean, you're plied with beer and a, and a hot dog <laughs> and you're, you know, asked to sit around the yeah. campfire and tell tales. And it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing atmosphere, um, over there. Um, really, really phenomenal.
1: Well, one, um, switching gears just a tad, one of the chapters that I found really interesting, uh, I think perhaps was different from the chapter on the limit, but you talked about, um, kind of getting into a flow state or getting into the i don't know the zone for lack of a better word and um i, I think in that chapter you you took some inspiration or you admired the motorcycle racers uh, racers that compete at the uh, the isle of man tt
0: mm-hmm. um the thing in the
1: world that, So wow i i just it's it's really hard for me to comprehend like even getting on a bike to attempt to do that, knowing that everything has to be so perfect. So how do you, you talk a little bit about your warm up process. Let's say you're at the hotel and you're trying to get yourself into that state. How?
2: Yeah. So that's, that's actually a really good example of some stuff. I wish I'd known a long time ago, but I've come to know more recently. So my daughter's actually, uh, working in the industry uh she's a sports scientist and she's um given me a lot of guidance and modern learning on on how to work on the psychological side of things but you know your example of the the isle of man tt motorcycle races is, is i i speak about confidence and fear right confidence and fear are the two things that determine your approach and your speed through every part of the racetrack um, if you're confident you know, you'll keep your foot down or, you know, you'll, you'll take it in a higher gear or whatever it is. Um, if, you're, if you're fearful, you'll, you'll lift or, or, you know, you will be less competitive. And it's that ability to control fear and increase confidence, which comes from a variety of things. It comes from experience, of course. It comes from having a car that is um, predictable, um, relatively easy to drive. You know, some cars that are edgy, they may be very quick over one lap, but they're unpredictable that's going to be more of a challenge so those those all those things are factors but if i if i use that tt example that motorcycle example i'm i'm not a motorcycle rider i mean i've fallen off a motorcycle but i'm i'm in no way uh understanding how those guys can manage their fear and be confident enough particularly because that is not even a real racetrack i mean it's a road course with stone walls and and lots of things to hit and unfortunately there are fatalities frequently on that uh, event so it, it's it's I use it as an example where I can't understand how they can do it. Um, equally, I, I guess some folks couldn't understand how we can drive the Nürburgring Nordschleife with its barriers and you know steep drops and, and various other challenges. I think it, it's just a question of what you can get used to. And for me, uh, the, the, the flow states that, that people talk of, and I'm not the only one to have talked about this, of course. There are many more famous people than me that, who, who've spoken of this. It's it's really a state of mind where you have under control your fears and you know what you're capable of and you resolve to only go to that level or maybe slightly beyond um, and if you know that going in if you know you can be competitive if you know you've already set a pole position time or you've set a competitive time um, then you 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 can be confident that you're not going to have to take yourself into well outside that comfort zone there'll still be times on the track where things happen and you you realize you are outside of your comfort zone maybe you're chasing someone and they're they're causing you to to drive fast than you're comfortable with but the flow state comes from having um a competitive car running at a competitive speed um but still be confident and and it's a very rewarding sensation um because what happens in that situation is that the car just seems to it's a cliche, but it seems to be an extension of your arms and legs. And and you, it's almost like it's not a car anymore. It's just doing what you think it should do. You think your way through the corner and it just does it. And there's no drama and there's no sudden snaps of oversteer or uh, any, any issues at all like that. It's just, you're completely in that zone at one with the car and the track. And it very rarely happens. It's happened to me on a couple of occasions, um, particularly one night stint I can remember at the ring, And I, 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 I have to say it's probably the source of the addiction.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I can imagine. So um, in in your experience, you talked about comfort and fear and, and these different elements. Did you ever find yourself working on a setup that uh, maybe by conventional wisdom or straight numbers might have been Less advantageous, but because it gave you a little bit more confidence, it would offset the the setup penalty. Just because you were more comfortable with the car,
2: yes, definitely. And endurance racing is um, all about that. Um, you know, there's an example in the book of um, two cars in a team, uh, identical uh, cars uh, on the face of it. And um, one of them was set up to be very quick over one lap, very aggressive, stiff setup. One was not. um, I was in the latter. And um, in the race, um, the other car crashed out because it was very edgy. And the problem with a long race um, is that track conditions change. And if you have a car which is so edgy that if you hit a small patch of damp or maybe a, a little bit of fluid on the track, whatever, um, and you don't have the chance to catch the car uh, because it's just too much on the edge. So absolutely, you know, we, we have had situations many times where we've said, look, we know that if we go in this direction, it'll be quicker, but for the race, we need to back off from that because it needs to be comfortable. And the other thing I touched on uh, earlier in this, in this discussion is you have to make sure that all the drivers who are driving the car are comfortable. Um, you know, if you've got a guy who's driving with you Uh, who may have less experience in that car or with that track, Um, and let's say the guy um, can be made comfortable, you might make that guy, I mean, around the Nürburgring, it could be five seconds quicker, right? If you optimize the setup for yourself, you might be half a second quicker. Sure. Go figure, right? You're all doing the same number of laps, more or less. So I'd rather make that guy five seconds quicker and me drive a car that isn't quite as, as I would like it. But I know that as a team, we're going to be, We're going to be quicker. I'll tell you, there's another part to that question is um, cars are so – the race cars are so complex these days. I mean, when I started, you know, club racing, if you change something, it was evident immediately and you could feel everything. These days, there are so many tricks and gadgets and some of the electronic systems are so complex and you really need to have someone in the team who's on top of all of that. And the last Nürburgring 24 I did – Um, we had an issue with the traction control that we just couldn't trace. And all the way from Thursday first practice through to actually during the race, we were still at every pit stop trying to make changes to understand what the hell was triggering the traction control. And and it was triggering in very unhelpful places, not when you wanted it. Um, And and we we went well away from an optimal setup to try to mitigate that. Um, So it's not only maybe going in strange directions because you want to make the car quicker. It's also to figure out what on earth is, is, is going wrong with the car and, and try some really extreme and unusual, um, set of approaches to try and, to try and mitigate those two. To finish first, first you must finish. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure.
1: So you talked about your career in, in GT cars. Um, this is actually a question that I would like to know the answer to. Um, in your experience, what is the highest level competition class for which you've had a chance to race? What did you get to drive? And maybe that car, what were the things you found most enjoyable and what were the biggest challenges that you had to work on as a driver?
2: Wow. Um, I would, I would say I would say actually it maybe not the answer you'd expect but um the last two seasons I've raced um in something called Cup 3 which is a one make Porsche um championship there's Cup 2 and Cup 3 the Cup 3 are Cayman essentially a GT4 type spec car okay um and um the reason that I'm choosing that to answer your question um is because the cars are all the same in that class and in all other forms of gt racing um whether it was with aston or mercedes or others uh before that um the cars were all different um and so you had a situation where if you won it might have been the car or certain parts of the track the car was quicker than others in the cup three you're essentially not advantaged other than by driving style and setup so um I found it challenging because you could never really open up an enormous gap over competition. Um, There was too much, uh, too many similarities and there was relatively little you could do in terms of setup. Sure. I mean, you can play with ride heights and suspension, stiffness, spring rates, um, you know, bump rebound, all those things, um, all the geometry, but you know, the cars were very clearly controlled in terms of power, in terms of aero, um and there were certain limitations on what you could change so um yeah i would say i would say cup three and it it was tremendously enjoyable um because of that because it's a great deal of fun overtaking people who are you know a lap down and it's uh, it's quite exciting being overtaken by quicker classes sometimes um because you have to manage your own speed and try and make sure you don't lose too much time when you're being overtaken and that's that's another skill altogether but When you're racing head to head with, you know, 20 other cars that are all identical to you amongst all those other classes, um, that's quite a that's quite a thrill. And, um, yeah, we 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 had a lot of fun um, racing in Cup three.
1: Adam, to that end, I wouldn't describe myself typically as an overly competitive person, but this is certainly true when I was driving, but in other cases of my life as well. There is something very gratifying if you're competing head to head or, or with a group, there's something tremendously gratifying about knowing that the people around you are trying their hardest and you are too, and you're doing better. Like there's a, there's (laughs) a fulfillment there that is hard for me to describe,
0: as a uh, as a perennial uh, mid-packer, uh, I've always wanted to be there. And the few times that I have been there, like when you get on the podium, uh, it's, it's a pretty good feeling. I mean, P4 does not feel as good as P3. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, especially with spec racing. Spec racing in the States, spec Miata, we've got like spec E46, uh, stuff like that. Those are popular classes for a reason, probably because... You just you don't have as many options you know the playing field is pretty level and yeah now, now you're playing the setup and drive it better game uh versus the build the better mousetrap game i think they're all fun games but uh yeah lots of ways to play lots of games to play in this hobby for sure
2: they're, they're all entertaining in their own ways i i will say this about uh endurance racing and and forgive me because i i do tend to uh to blow that trumpet a lot but um I've noticed not just for myself, but for the people who do it with me, um, there's a huge amount of satisfaction to just finish the, a race like that. Um, you know, we've had events where um, something's gone wrong with the car. Um, you know, whether it's uh, early in the race or, or, or later in the race, and, and we're well off, well off the podium. But still, mm-hmm. the feeling of crossing the line after 24 hours, of, of basically beating the track and the conditions, and making it to the end. Yes. Is in itself tremendously rewarding, notwithstanding all of the uh, cut and thrust of battle along the way. It's, it's just the fact that you've made it and it kind of it, it creates a bond between people. Um, For sure. Drivers from different teams and, and teammates and, and mechanics and engineers and people on the pit wall. You know, the, the, you should see those guys, the toughest guys you might imagine, after a race like that don't look so tough.
0: Yeah, the the uh, the limited amounts of amateur enduro that I've done here, which is probably 15, 20 races, uh, 15 races, maybe um, at the end of the race, regardless of if you've won or if you've gotten top 10 in your class, uh, it it's one of the best feelings to just walk over to track exit and and just clap for everybody that finished the race. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a vibe. That's a vibe for sure.
2: Definitely. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why after the, these 24 hour races, people tend not to go home. <laughs> they tend to want to hang around and talk because there's, you know, there's 24 hours of racing to discuss you yeah, know, right, there's right. a, lot of, a lot of beers to clink. And it's, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: it's, it's the, great... the war of attrition is real. Absolutely.
2: Sure. absolutely. I can imagine it must be the, must've been the same after a particularly fierce battle in medieval times, you know, uh, people would want to sort of talk about it all and, and how they had these narrow escapes here and there. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's entertaining for a different reason. You know, sprint racing brings certain thrills. Um, uh, it's very intense. You can't afford to, I remember my, my first uh, foray into one mate racing, which was, as I mentioned, fiestas, that was sprint racing. You know, mm-hmm. you've only got 10 laps, 15 laps. You're only really racing for 20, 25 minutes. And you had to be absolutely on it the whole time. Um, right. and, and if you actually wanted to beat anybody, you had to be more than on it, you know? So it it, it was very intense and, In the early days, I used to get headaches afterwards, not during, thankfully, but afterwards in the process of sort of winding down after the race. I used to get these blinding headaches because I'd been using my concentration way beyond what I was originally trained to do. And thankfully, that that symptom, you know, went away over 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 the years. And I don't have that problem. But I I distinctly remember um, the level of intensity was was, you know, huge for for, yeah. for for somebody
0: who wasn't used to it i've had the my second sprint race ever with the scca i made myself like physically ill i felt fine during the race and took the checker flag and uh yeah it was i was i was so gripped up and intense and i had a headache and i literally made myself uh nauseous to the point of uh vomiting it was just it's so intense sometimes you
2: you're amongst the best with that, I mean James Hunt used to throw up before a race, and various other people, yeah, yeah
0: well, uh, I don't know if I was amongst the best, but the symptoms might have been the same
2: there you go, there you go, but I think what we're talking yeah. about is is training you know there's a there's an element in in the book around uh, fit to fit to race, I think the chapter is called is' about uh, yep. you know not just physical fitness and and mental fitness but um psychologically you know those those things that you just described um You can train yourself. You can train yourself to be able to withstand that and get used to that. And it comes back to, um, you know, making sure that you understand what you're going to put yourself through and and managing all of those various challenges so that you can uh, perform to your, to your personal maximum.
0: Yeah. And it's fascinating how adaptable uh, we as humans actually are to some of these situations too.
2: So I agree with you. I've,
1: um, I, I think maybe a uh, a layperson example. If you watch racing, is um, if you uh, if you watch an F one car during qualifying and you have context for how fast the lap times are, um, these these cars are going absolutely breakneck speed. Right? Like it, if I know that if I was in the car, I would be completely overwhelmed with 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 stimuli. But what's strange is when they put you in the driver's eye camera for some reason, when you're, when you're looking at what the driver sees, it doesn't seem as crazy, but like to run a minute 31 at Coda is, well, I don't know, 35 seconds faster than any production car has ever run there. It's, it is unbelievable, but I think your brain kind of gets used to, um, whatever information it's receiving in the. I guess the really good ones can can take that information and adapt to the the speed of that information, and just respond.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, I have to be careful here because obviously different countries have different speed limits. But if you drive on the uh, on the freeway at freeway speeds um, for a couple of hours, and then you come off and drive on a a a regular um, highway uh, off the off the off you know into the countryside or whatever your brain has got used to the speed on the on the freeway and then you 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 realize as you then drive on the side roads that um everything feels incredibly slow because your brain has kind of got used to that processing speed you know and in the old days when film cameras existed you know it was frames per second right so if the brain is able to process a number of frames per second at high speed then with that capability, if you then drive at low speed, you know, through a town or whatever, it's going to feel really, really slow, painfully slow. Um, and I think it's the same with racing. You you kind of get used to the speed and whenever I've stepped up a category and gone into a quicker car, you know, you go out the pit lane, you'll, you'll put your foot fully down and you think, wow, you know, that that's, that's quick. You go through the first corner, you put your foot down, you think, yeah, that's quite quick. And then after the third corner, you're still trying to make a dent in the floor with the gas pedal, because, it, it's it, you've got used to it, and you just want it to be quicker. Um, so I think we do adapt, like you said. I think we adapt very quickly, um, and it's probably something to do with evolution again and survival. You know, we've we've obviously finding ourselves in a new environment. We need to 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 adapt quickly before we uh, we get wiped out. So maybe there's some of that in there, um, but I certainly think that there's a um, that there's A fascination with speed, which um, to your F1 example, um, it's tempting to think that speed equals entertainment, both for driver and for uh, spectator. But actually, I I don't think it is. I think that a little bit like what we were saying um, earlier, if if you can look at uh, speed and grip and try and make sure that the relationship between speed and grip means that you're going to see the car sliding. You're going to see the car locking up. That's when it starts to get exciting for driver and spectator. Right. Um, and, and I think the problem that F1 and some other categories have got is there's just way too aer- much aerodynamic grip, which is totally irrelevant to most road cars. So it's, it's uh, you know, not not even accurate to say that the technology development is, is relevant to road cars and that's where they do it. I mean, for the downforce uh, it just makes it hard to follow. It just makes the grip through the corners, particularly the high speed corners, far too high. And then the mechanical grip um, equally is is very high. And if they want to be road relevant, you know, why are they throwing tyres away after 20 laps? Um, this is not what we should be seeing. If I go back to that Fun Cup example, the reason that those cars were so entertaining is they weren't powerful. They weren't aerodynamic, but they had tyres that may as well be, have been made of wood. Uh, they were so hard, they lasted <laughs> They lasted 12 hours. And because of that, you were sliding sideways everywhere and you're always managing the grip. Um, but you weren't worried that the tires were going to wear out. Um, so, you know, the, the racing was phenomenally exciting for driver and spectator alike. And it's got a huge right. following because of that. Nothing to do with speed. So I think F1 needs to, you know, scratch his head a little bit, needs to think about reducing downforce, reducing grip, couple of other things i think that they should think about that i've mentioned in the book and that would increase the quality of the racing um, immeasurably of course they'll immediately say we can't do that because if we slow the f1 cars down the f2 cars will be quicker well do the same to them you know slow them all down because it's nothing to do with speed it's to do with the quality of the racing that should be paramount sure
1: well, uh, we've been at this for an hour and a half, and uh, you are in a different time zone than us, so I think it's getting quite late. Um, it doesn't
2: feel like it for me. I'm enjoying the conversation, believe me. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, if, I didn't think it was that long.
1: <laughs> if you are uh, if you are into this, I am happy to give you a ring on occasion and just have you on the show to talk about racing. Um, I'd love to. What is what is your plan for 2024?
2: So uh, these days, um, I mean, I should, I should point out in case uh, <laughs> you haven't made it clear kindly you didn't refer to my age. Um, so I'm, I'm 55 years old now, so I'm pretty choosy about what I do and what I drive. My focus is uh, Nürburgring. Again, I'll be there at the 24 hours. Uh, I'm not sure yet uh, which team. I, I like to stay with the same team because, as we've already talked about, um, developing the relationship with the team and the car means that you get more out of it so I, I would like to continue that um, but a friend of mine turned me on to some classic racing um, at the end of this last season and um, I might well go a little bit in that direction and the reason for that is because um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of getting back to basics, I'm a big fan of uh, driver input being you know the, the greater part of, of the success and those cars you know the tires the the brakes uh, the gearbox all of those things have to be carefully managed and, uh, and that's quite an attraction so i think i may well um move in that direction and i've had a few experiences in classic cars over the years particularly in my career um which which i really enjoyed um and in fact i think you know that could be a direction I'd like to do more of. Um, so what what
1: era of classic because I uh I've not been to the the Goodwood Festival of Speed but something that I really have a fascination with are like pre World War 1 cars uh, mm. because they're they're not really cars yet. The way that you operate them and the way that you do things is hasn't yet been standardized. And I, I find them fascinating. So, what's what's the generation of car racing that speaks to you?
2: I think for me, um, I differentiate between vintage and, and classic in the sense that um, Goodwood revival, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, is is for me. It's all about the cars that were in the early sixties. is that kind of range um, that I'm interested in um you know revival has a cut off anyway um from when they stopped doing f1 there um so uh, that's that's when you see some of those cars that have unbelievable sort of pedigree of cars now that have raced all over the world very famous cars um racing there all the way down to small uh, little mgs and, and and other other cars they, they, they all hold a great deal of fascination for me but like i said it's it's about the lack of electronic assistance. It's about not running on, you know, modern slicks. It's about, um, having to manage, uh, weaknesses in the car. Th- those things I find, um, really quite, quite entertaining uh, as a concept. So I think that's probably where, um, where the attraction lies in so, the simplicity of it.
1: Um, Peter, uh, where can people who should buy your book go buy your
2: book? Um, Well, at risk of sounding uh, just purely like a salesman, um, everyone should buy this book and not because it's going to make me rich, because I can assure (laughs) you, uh, as I've discovered this last uh, month, writing and selling books doesn't make uh, many people rich at all. But the reason is um, because I think it speaks to uh, folks who are truly enthusiastic about motorsport and it speaks to um, folks who want to understand what they're looking at, because so much of it is smoke and mirrors now, particularly at the top level. Um I can guarantee that if you read this, watching motorsport will never be the same for you again in a good way. Um, so the book's available um, through most of the normal online sources. So if you go on Amazon, for example, and search Racing Hell by Peter Kate, then you will find uh, the book there. Um, you'll find it at good bookstores, uh, Barnes and Noble and so on in the States, um, Walmart, others. They all have access to. Uh, the big distributors so you'll be able to find it um anywhere but you know it's uh it's one of those um things that i'm i can't claim i think you kindly mentioned i was a pro writer a pro author yeah uh, all of two months since the book was released (laughs) um and and i didn't set out to be a pro author by any means um what i sincerely believe is and this conversation has just reinforced that amongst others is that there are a lot of important messages in that book for people who care about the future of our sport, whether they want the sport to progress, as the dedication says in the book, or whether they want to progress themselves in the sport. Um, I wish I had read a book like that when I started, and um, I I have to sort of point you towards the reviews of people who've read it. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to say that I think it's resonating with folk who are, I would say, genuine enthusiasts of authentic motorsport
1: i i wholeheartedly agree it's um it's it's fun and refreshing and adam and i in some cases have some small view of what happens behind the curtain in in motorsport but it explaining it in a way that not is is not so complicated and full of jargon but at the same time, doing justice to the complexity, I thought, was really nice.
2: Thank you. It's a it's a tough one. It's a tough balance to strike. Um, you know, you'll find things in the glossary that some folk will say, really? You know, why did you put that in? Um, other folk will say, well, I'm glad you put that in because I didn't know what that meant and I was too embarrassed to ask. But, you know, I, I got into a bit of a, an argument um, because the number of corners at the Nordschleife is frequently debated. Um, You know, is it 86? Is it 82? Is it 150? Um, So the reason for the definition of a corner in the glossary is not because I don't think people understand what a corner is, but it had to be defined in a certain way to be able to excuse the number of corners that I claim are on the Nordschleife. So, you know, there's always a reason. In, Um,
1: In our technical rule set this year, I had to formally define gasoline (laughs)
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we, we literally did we had to do that. Yep. I did that three three
1: weeks ago. Chemical
2: formulas, Labrin, or uh...
1: Well, uh so there there was a, a curious instance. Um in the United States, I don't know if they're a vendor in um Europe, but VP makes racing fuel and cars that Uh, may not have enough fuel pump capacity to to use E85, we'll use a product called MS-109, which is an oxygenated fuel. I I, I don't think it's MTBE that they use, but uh, I looked up the SDS for this material, and it's uh, hydrocarbons and this other oxygenated hydrocarbon. And uh, in one of our classes to me that doesn't meet the definition of gasoline because it's not a product you buy at a filling station and it's oxygenated in nature means that it's kind of advantageous relative to what you would buy for a DOT fuel. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was uh, in a position to go and um, uh, apply penalty to a driver that was using this fuel in one of our classes for which it wasn't allowed. And I'll be damned! The fifty-five gallon barrel that he had in his trailer had a label on it that just said gasoline, right? Like uh-huh. it, from VP, it just says their their shipping label says gasoline. It's like, well, son of a yep. bitch. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he, so, yeah, who's it? He, he didn't. Yeah. He, he did not get disqualified. He almost got disqualified, but yeah, so, that was a hard one.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's tough, but I think in in terms of uh, pitching it right. Um, You know, there'll always be amongst any readership, there'll always be the very knowledgeable and there'll always be the folks who want to get knowledgeable. And I did try to strike the right balance. It, it is important also just to mention that um I wanted to make sure that it was my voice throughout. It, it hasn't been edited by someone else. Okay. There was an editor to make sure I didn't make grammatical errors or, you know, accidentally repeat myself, but in terms of the content, it's all me. It's all uh true to life. Um and I think that's also important because when people read a book like that, um, as soon as it becomes third-party opinion, um it, it, it loses its edge, yep. it loses its authenticity. And and what I would love, and I encourage this at any level, whether it's um, you know, online reviews or or emails to me or phone calls or through social media, you know, in the book, I I put my uh my, my social media tag so you can reach me. I want to discuss this stuff. You know, it, this isn't one of those situations where you read the book, oh, okay, that's done now, and then, you know, move on. I, I, I'm. It provokes questions. It, it it talks about possible solutions, but it's not necessarily the only solution. So I really hope that this drives discussion. I'd love to be part of those discussions, um, and perhaps together, you know, we can fix some of the things that are um, awry in this sport.
1: Well... Uh, Peter, I want to thank you so much for uh, offering up your time for the conversation.
2: You're most uh, welcome.
1: I want to follow your progress in racing, um, both next year and to follow. Where can I and others see the things you post about motorsports?
2: Probably the best place uh, would be at Peter Kate Racer on, uh, on X, as we now call it, X Twitter, uh, or on Instagram, um, Facebook too. Um, those are the typical places where I try to put stuff out. But, you know, I'm not one of the younger generations. So uh, if you see stuff on there, um, I hope you'll agree it'll be meaningful and entertaining and you just won't see, uh, you know, a, a photograph of a walk I took that day or an interesting flower. Um, it, it'll be it'll be meaningful stuff that you'll find there.
1: Well, I'm, I'm really I looking have, forward to it.
0: I have one final question. Uh, will there be an audiobook cuz people love audiobooks.
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think you have, you
0: have
1: you have a great voice. You for have it, a too. voice for it. I would encourage you to record it.
2: <laughs> that's very kind of you. Um I, I I don't sound good to me by the way, but that's perhaps in my head. Uh, but if I uh, if I answer your question with this. First of all, um the ebook does have the text to speech enabled. And the reason for that is because quite a few people Want to listen to the book because they don't feel comfortable reading it or they're driving. Um, you know, there are many reasons, but of course that text to speech doesn't have my voice. So I have investigated a studio um, in UK. Uh, I know exactly what it'll take to get it done. It'll probably be a week of studio time. Um, and then there'll be uh, some costs to publish that audio book along the usual channels. So it is in discussion. Um, I don't want to say yes just yet um, because, frankly, um, there's a lot of other things I need to get done. And and this is one which um, I'm going to have to shoehorn into my schedule. But um, it it is on the cards. And if I get enough requests, such as the one you just gave, then um, I'll I'll certainly look at uh, getting that done sometime in the next year.
0: I I just I assumed that uh, our listeners probably would be curious. Mm. uh, and, Mm. And I personally love I love listening to books while I'm driving,
2: et cetera. Well, certainly, you know, one of the things I I, I said to the studio when we were discussing it is, if we're going to do it, it has to be me to do it. Um, And I only say that not through any arrogance, but it's my voice uh, in the words. And I know you've read the book or, or, you know, you would would agree that it comes across as if I'm talking. um, And I think that's why I think it has to be me. I would feel very uncomfortable if somebody else read it.
1: Well, I... I know that in my experience, I was hearing the words as I read them in your voice. And I would imagine now if, if people listen to this show, uh, if they do pick up a copy, they will hear it in your voice also.
2: Well, that's great. That, that's what I set out to achieve. I appreciate that comment. You know, I, I don't want to give away any secrets, but um, the last chapter, uh, chapter 24, um, if, if that didn't have my voice in it, it wouldn't work. So I'll leave that little mystery for your readers to, to discover. But it's um, a very personal viewpoint um, of, of a lap around the nodge life in the middle of a race in the night. Right. Um, and the things that occur on that lap really did occur. Um, and I saw them firsthand. And I, I hope that my description does it justice.
1: Well, I, I think with that, we will uh, end the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening.
2: Fantastic. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and
0: Adam Jabey, co hosted by Derek Yarbrough, and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes, and come and find us in the Pit Grid Live to say hello.